Hello and welcome to episode 1031 of The Sleeper and the Bust. It is Wednesday, March 23rd. I'm your host, Paul Spore, and I am flying solo for the first time in quite a while. I don't even remember the last one, to be honest. Uh, but I'm doing the reliever preview. It's the last of our position previews to make sure that y'all are equipped for uh, the first of probably the two biggest draft weekends of the year. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure this got out. I'm leaving for Vegas tomorrow. Justin, I believe, left today. And so uh, we just we just wanted to be honest with ourselves. We don't really think we're going to make time to record in Vegas, right? We're going to be there with a bunch of people from the fantasy community for the NFBC main event and a lot of other drafts and setting aside time to, to do a full pod uh, just put, putting that on ourselves as a must, as opposed to maybe something that could pop up, didn't seem like a good idea. So the solution was we recorded on Sunday. We got the outfielders done in one fell swoop. We recorded on Tuesday. We got the starting pitchers done in one fell swoop. And then I said, I can do the relievers by myself. So let's just get started and talk about this relief pool. It's been an interesting dynamic that it has uh, followed over the course of the season because two things, you know, the winter drafts are primarily what are called draft and hold or draft champions leagues. Now, these are over at the NFBC. There's also like best ball leagues and, um, Basically, just those. I think best ball and, and draft champions are the are the main thrust of leagues that you're going to find in the winter. So for the draft and hold, you draft all 50 of your guys at the draft, and that's it. There are no pickups. You got to go with what you got all year. So you can't scrounge for saves. Um, at the end of the year, in the waiver pool, there will be some legit closers in there at times because they didn't they didn't get drafted and they came out of nowhere. So you got to get all your saves. You throw in the lockout. And it created this situation where the uncertainty of so many teams, plus the fact that you already have to get them all at at the draft table, created a real push-up of saves that we have not seen uh, ever. Question mark. I, I I mean I really I really don't recall ever seeing such an aggressive aggressive push for the top tiers. Of closers because you know depending on where your number lands, I think I come out at like six or seven, um, but there's only there's only a handful of like lockdown reliables, and then from that point forward, it opens up in in a uh, really rough way where where that you can't make heads or tails of anything, and you could uh, have a vastly different setup than than somebody else who's got the draft there because what's this team going to do? What's this team going to do? So the lockout played a big role in that too. We normally would see it. We, I think we probably always see a push up at the front end of the draft season just because uh, the off season hasn't started yet. But then as the off season goes, you start to see the trades and the roster moves and you're like, okay, these situations are settled. We didn't get that until now. But even now, I think we're seeing a situation where People are still really eager to get these top tier guys. Let's talk about the tip top tier here, the the aces, if you will. And I've got I've got four guys that I consider full on aces. These are the guys that I think you can go in expecting premium ratios, premium strikeouts, and thirty plus saves. Um, and you know the two at the top, the two the double H's. Hendricks and Hader, Hader and Hendricks, however you got them. I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned about splitting them one way or the other. Um, I think 
think I have Hendrix listed one. No, it is Hater. Okay, because that's that's how I feel. I do feel, I do feel a little bit closer to to liking Hater at one. But again, I I can go either way with it. Uh, you will see Hater as my number one on the RP sheet. Um, in our Patreon ranks, if you if you subscribe to that and check those out with Hendrix at two, you can call them one one a. It doesn't matter, and I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on them. These guys are locked in. Uh, sure, any closer can lose their job, even the premium, but we do not have an expectation that these guys are as, in a big threat. Like they have a substantial amount of leash that uh, they they could mess up quite a bit, and and not lose the job. I, I think you need probably like three weeks to a month of failure to where they, they, before they'd be moved out. Obviously injury can change anything, but in terms of performance, it would take Hendricks and Hayter quite a bit of time uh, to, of messing up consistently before they were removed from the role. <clears throat> By the way, I did say that the threshold here for these top four is only 30 saves. And that's because since 2017, so that's 17, 18, 19, and 21, the last four full seasons, because obviously 20 was, was nothing. In those four seasons, we have just seven guys at 40 plus, uh, or seven seasons worth. Actually, no, there are no repeats. So it is seven individual guys that, that have gone 40 plus. So that's that's just not not a thing anymore. And the real the real issue has been a move in baseball that is actually really smart, but it's complete and utter hell on us fantasy dweebs. Using your best guys in the best situations, regardless of whether or not that's the ninth inning, makes a ton of sense. I applaud it greatly as a baseball mind. As a fantasy mind, it makes me want to pull the very last remaining bits of my hair out uh, because it makes life so difficult. So it is one of those conundrums where I battle internally like... Damn, you're really smart for for maximizing your bullpen usage, but boy, do I wish you would just give my boy Giovanni Gallegos 40 save attempts. Uh, you know, so I I get I get it I I get it though. The other two guys in the ace tier that we're not going to dive in too much on because again, their aces I don't know that they need a ton of extra coverage are Emmanuel Cosse in Cleveland and uh, Rice Iglesias in LA. And again. I'm not going to quibble with the rankings of those four, however you see fit. I think those are the generally accepted top four. Uh, maybe maybe Presley gets in there for some folks. I, I don't know. Let me look at the ADP lately. Uh, no, it looks like those top... I think Diaz is probably the one who might poke in above maybe Classe at times. It does seem to be Hayter Hendricks, Iglesias in ADP order with Classe, Diaz, and Presley... <clears throat> all going very close to each other. In fact, I'm looking at a sample right now of the online uh, championship, the Rotowire online championship, which are 12 team leagues. Uh, these are standard leagues. You know, these you have weekly moves, you do fab and all that. So these are, are uh, just 12 team leagues like that. They go Diaz at 54, Presley at 56, uh, or excuse me, Class A at 52, Diaz at 54, Presley at 56. So they're like two picks apart there. So very close, meaning you can put them in kind of any order you want. I do happen to give Classe that little extra jolt up there in the ace tier. And then I put the other guys uh, in, in the tier below them. But that's less about them and more just kind of the situation of, of what they're dealing with. I, I guess a little. it's a little bit on Diaz uh, that 
you know, he's shown he's shown some flaws in recent years, but he was excellent last year, and I'm not sure that he gets enough credit for it. He was actually really good in the 2020 season, too, but I think for Edwin Diaz in New York with the Mets, I think the start of his 2020, which remember, 2020 was two months. It's nothing, especially for relievers, but he got off to a brutal start uh, where he gave up uh, I think two home runs in in his two two of his first three outings in some form of fact. Let me just pull it up. Hang on, I'm sorry. I should just do that instead of speculating here. Yeah, okay. So he went clean save the first outing and then gave up runs in the next two, including a homer in one and then two walks in a third of an inning meltdown in the other. For whatever reason, even though it was just two bad outings, that seemed to stick with him throughout 20. And he carried this reputation of like, well, Diaz was bumpy last year. It's like. And I remember this chatter coming into 2021. I was like, no, no, he absolutely wasn't. In fact, that homer was one of two that he gave up. His homer rate was down to 0.7. So there's probably some residual 2019 angst that carried over when two of his first three outings in 2020 were bad. And again, that's Edwin Diaz with the Mets. But he stabilized, and he was pretty good last year, too. ERA was a little bit up at 347, um, but... It was a 248 FIP because the underlying skills were amazing. The home run rate was down. It was all good. He is a, a closing stud. Again, I put the four guys at the top there as, as aces just to kind of separate them. But you could really put Diaz and Gallegos. Uh, not Gallegos. I love Gallegos. I'll talk about him in a minute. D- Diaz and Presley up there as well if you wanted. Presley, the one thing about him that's kind of interesting, and I, I think he's bona fide as well. He was my guy last year. I got him so many spots uh, where I could. He only got 26 saves despite being the dude. Uh, you know, he was not really challenged. There weren't guys picking up appreciable amounts of saves. There were a handful of twos and a couple of ones on the team. He just didn't end up with a ton of opportunities. I think part of that was maybe just the excellence of Houston, maybe blowing out teams and not creating enough three three runs or fewer leads in the ninth inning for Presley. But he had a 225 ERA, a .97 whip, and 81 strikeouts in four, 64 innings of work with those 26 saves. And that's kind of the thing is because the saves counts have come down, you don't have to put up a colossal total, total to be one of the very best. And so you see 26 from Presley last year and you're like, oh, you know, is that <clears throat> is that a problematic number? Is that something I should be worried about? For me, no, I'm absolutely not worried about it. He was still the ninth closer uh, last year by our auction calculator. And I have no problems with that. Uh, and that's ninth reliever, I should say, because Colin McHugh actually fit in there at six um, in terms of dollar value. But of course, he doesn't offer quite as much fantasy value because of it, he doesn't get the saves. He only had one save last year. He did he did snake six wins, pitched 64 innings of a 155 ERA and a .94 whip with a 30% strikeout rate. So that's why McHugh rated so high. But Presley's right there. And I think there's a great chance that he gets a lot more saves this year uh, just by virtue of, of more chances. So now you go to the what I would call... I would call them the shaky studs. And I actually put Diaz in this group. I'm, I'm, I'm going to move him up now. Um, uh, here, The way I'm breaking this down that you're going to see on the rundown is that I got the best. And I put Hendricks and Hayter kind of a, by themselves there. And then I put the trusted studs, Classe, Iglesias, Presley, Diaz. Now for the shaky studs, I got two. And they're both veterans. And one of them was not shaky last year. So it might be a little bit rude to even say that about Kenley Jansen. 
but I'm using it, and this is why I had Diaz there too, because remember, two years ago, he was bad. Um, and Jansen's never done anything like that. So I probably should put Jansen up there with Diaz or keep Diaz down there, one or the other. It really shouldn't be. Yeah, in fact, I'm, I'll bring Diaz down here because he does have, he you know, he has enough wobbliness in the recent history that I'll put him under the shaky studs, even though I talked about how his 20 and 21 were, were quite good. Uh, because Jansen, he's 34. He's had a few wobbles. I think they've mostly been playoff wobbles, though. Um, there was, what was it? Was it the beginning of 19 where he started off shaky? Maybe that's what it was. Uh, 19, I believe he got off to a, a bumpy start. I'm looking right now. Well... Sorta, not really. I thought there was a year recently where Jansen was like velo. Oh, it was eighteen. Okay, so we're pretty far removed from that. If that that was eighteen, when <clears throat> excuse me, Kenley Jansen had a five fifty nine ERA through April. Pardon me, I'm gonna take some drinks of water. For some reason, my voice is already kind of going, and I just started this, but. He had a 5.59 ERA and his whip, uh, excuse me, his velo was way down and there was some concern. But now we're talking that's 2018, and since then Kenley Jansen has a 2.99 ERA and a 107 WHIP with 199 strikeouts and 156 in the third innings with 82 saves. So, you know what? I'm gonna move Jansen and I'm gonna move him into the trusted studs. He's in Atlanta now, which is a shock and a half, by the way. Sorry if you jumped in on Will Smith. You know, I was actually, I'm not a huge Will Smith guy, but I was giving him some love because I was like, well, they're not, they're not going to go away from him to somebody else that they have. I didn't consider that they would bring somebody else in. I just thought, and it, it was never like a negative against Matzik. I actually think Matzik is their best reliever. But again, going off of what I said earlier about better bullpen management, teams are also open to putting their second best reliever as the closer, giving him the three inning leads in the ninth inning, and then letting their best reliever pitch the fireman role more consistently. And when you have a deeper bullpen, the way... Uh, Atlanta kind of does, especially now, and they really do now because they added McHugh and Jansen, but with their bullpen that they had last year in the playoffs, they were able to put Will Smith there uh, coming off a of kind of a bumpy season, and then Matzik was just a god getting the ball to him. So I was like, y'all, Will Smith is uh, a little bit worrisome from a stats perspective, but from a stability standpoint, he's ironclad was what my I was thinking until... They up and signed Kenley freaking Jansen. So it makes Jan we knew wherever Jansen was going to go, he was going to be a stud. Uh, but unfortunately, he took a spot of somebody who was also being already being seen as pretty stable. Um, but then the other shaky stud is, of course, a roll this chap. And you guys probably could have guessed that. So now in that shaky studs tier, you're going to see the two New York guys. Now, Chapman's is a little bit more wobbly recently than Edwin Diaz. It's because, again, I already outlined how Diaz has kind of moved away from the 19, but I'm still going to leave him in that tier just because we're not that far removed. Chapman, however, whew, it's it's been a little bit of a bumpy road, and I don't know that he's going to be free and clear, unencumbered with the job at this point. Because you look at it, and it's still a 41% strikeout rate, which is awesome, don't get me wrong, but it's a 1.5 homer nine. The issue with uh, Chapman right now is that when he gets got, 
it's with the long ball. And that's problematic because he still has walk issues. He was up at 16% in 2021. The strikeout rate was at 40%. It was a, a little bit higher in his 11 and two thirds from 2020. That's why he's 41% since 2020, but 15% walks and a 1.5 homer nine has led to a 331 ERA and a 124 whip. So you're not getting, those are not premium rates from a reliever. Now you don't need premium rates if you're getting 30 saves because you're, you're really paying for the saves and, and the ratios are sometimes uh, tacked on as kind of extra, but he, he's not a role as Chapman, you know, uh, capital letters anymore. I think he's definitely come down a level from the role as Chapman uh, that was at his peak. His velo is still good, but it's, you know, it's been averaging 98, 99 since 2018, which again, to say that as like, well, he's down to 98.6 since 2018. Y'all, he was at 100 flat uh, or above even. He was he was over 100 at times. Uh, let's see, from 2014 to 2017, he was 100 flat. But in three of those seasons, his average fastball for Roldis Chapman was 100.3, 100.4, and 100.1. Just disgusting. And listen, father time gets everybody, and he's starting to tickle down, trickle down, tickle down. He's tickling his velocity down. Um, he's trickling down a little bit in velo. The walk rate has always been something that can kind of go haywire on him, although it is getting worse. But now this home run issue is my biggest concern. And you think like, Oh, well, 98.99 is still dope. It is. But when you're living 100 to 102, those miles, those three to four miles down are a difference and that makes the ball more hittable. And the, and anyone can can time up velo, uh, you know, if you give them enough chances at it and it's straight enough. And so as the fastball has diminished a bit for Chapman, he's gotten a bit worse. So he's a bit of a shaky stud. Uh, let's go to our next group because... These are not all in ranking order. This next group here, that what I'm calling the fireman closers, I would take all of them over Chapman, okay? So I just wanna be clear on that. The rankings are still available um, on our Patreon and I will put up a new closer sheet. In fact, I think I'll do that tomorrow. I'll put up a new closer sheet for Thursday. That can be my article while I'm on the road. And you guys can see where I'm at with everyone. It's not gonna. It's gonna obviously have some big changes. Like Will Smith's gonna come down, and um, Craig Kimbrell's gonna have to come down because he's not traded yet. We'll talk about him in a moment. But yeah, I'll get that updated this week so you have it. But if you are a Patreon member, you get the you get the closer chart where I list my stability uh, tag for everybody, plus the dark horse and the backup in each bullpen. And I have the RP ranks one to whatever if you just want to see a ranking. But anyway, the Fireman Closers, all four of whom I like more than Aroldis Chapman, include Jordan Romano in Toronto, Giovanni Gagos in St. Louis, Blake Trinan in LA for the Dodgers, and Taylor Rogers with Minnesota. And I've, I've recently learned that I'm very much not alone on my Taylor Rogers love. So I'm going to go in reverse order here and start with him um, because I want to talk a little Taylor Rogers in Minnesota. They had a down year last year as just an organization, and it went a little bit sideways, so they moved some pieces, and they just kind of said, you know what, <clears throat> this is not our year. We'll, we'll, we'll regroup and, and, and get you back next year. They traded, uh, you know, they traded Barrios. I'm trying to think, did they trade anybody else substantial? I said pieces, plural, but now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, well, oh yeah, Nelson Cruz too. Yeah, so you know, a huge bat and a huge, and a huge arm they traded. They realized it wasn't their year. And listen, I know it's, it's, who cares about saying it now because things have changed, 
But with this Vegas trip, I was going to go check on their over-under and say, hey, I think I'm going to get back in on them if they've got like a high 70s or low 80s over-under. Well, then they go and make all these moves, and now that's not that's not chic at all. Like that's that's kind of the the fish play, perhaps, uh, because they're going to move that over under way up. I imagine now that they have Correa and uh, and the trade with the Yankees and Sonny Gray, and it's just not going to be as 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 sharp to to get in there. So anyway, that's that's Minnesota. But I like I like Taylor Rogers a lot. I think this is his job. Alex Colomay's gone. He he ended up kind of assuming the role last year. Hanso Robles was there. And Taylor Rogers only got nine saves to Colomay's 17 and Robles is 10. However, both are gone. And while there are some capable arms there, I do think that that Rogers is going to reassume the job in a predominant capacity, not a full-time. Again, all four of these guys are firemen. I think they're going to be having times where they come in in the seventh or the eighth, um, and that will cut into their save count, but they can still be great with their ratios, with their strikeouts, and if they get into the 20s uh, with their save count, the way Rodgers did in 2019 when he got 30, that's great. That's all I really need. And he was a little wobbly himself last year. He he kind of had to uh, refine his footing a little bit. His ERA was actually it was it was really up in in twenty, but that was for twenty innings. So who cares when it was a four hundred five one fifty? I I wasn't really concerned by that. But last year the BABIP was pretty high at three fifty eight, and so he had a three thirty five ERA and a one fourteen WHIP. I would, I would take those again this year, but I think Taylor Rogers can be better than that. He's a 315-115 career guy, and back in 2019, he was at 261 and one flat for the whip. His strikeout rate surged big time last year up to a career high 36% with a 13% swing strike rate, also a career high. So I really believe in Taylor Rogers. I think he can get back to being a 20-plus save guy. And I think that'll be excellent for them. Staying in reverse order of how this is listed, I could just change the order they're written, but I'm going to leave it. I've already said the reverse order thing, so I'm going to leave it. Blake Trinan. Now, I think because he has such a unique skill, uh, in particular his ability to induce ground balls, I think that will keep him in a fireman situation where he will not just be the unencumbered closer because there's going to be times, two on, nobody out in the seventh, where they need a ground ball more than you could ever believe, right? Like they just need somebody to come in and get the ball on the ground to try to get that double play opportunity. And they have other guys who can do it, but few guys do it better than Trinan on a consistent basis. He's a career 57% ground ball guy. He's got that bowling ball sinker. Uh, he can still get swings and misses too. So it's not like it's it's not even like a Tyler Rogers type, who is Taylor's brother, by the way, um, who has a great ground ball rate, but he really he really thrives off of weak contact. He doesn't really miss bats. Trinan is still missing bats too. So even if he doesn't necessarily get you that ground ball, he might strike the first guy out, get the next guy to ground and do a double play, and then bing, bang, boom, you're out of the inning before you even know it. So I do think Trinan, um, unless, there, unless we get news from Dave Roberts that, hey, he's the untouched closer, I think there'll still be some mix and match Keep an eye on somebody like a Bruce Dark Gratterall. He, I mean, he's got all the uh, all the qualities that you want of somebody to become a dominant closer eventually. Uh, he's still just going to be 23 this year, though, so I don't know that they're going to necessarily trust it to him yet. He hasn't quite 
When I, when I say he has all the pieces, I really mean his his raw stuff because he hasn't quite figured out how to miss bats at a clip that he should. Bruce Nargaderall for somebody who throws a hundred like he does. So I think there is still a little bit of a missing element, but he might mix in for a couple saves. Daniel Hudson is a veteran guy who absolutely knows what he's doing in the ninth inning. Um, didn't get any saves last year, but had 10 in the shortened season and eight back in 2019. So I think he'll mix in. Maybe an Alex Vesia steals one if there's a, some lefties coming up. Phil Bickford, former first rounder who latched on with the Dodgers last year and really showed some things out of the bullpen. He could snake a couple. I think it'll be mostly because Trinan is, is going to be in a fireman's role as opposed to not trusted with the ninth inning. We are a bit removed from him being an, an un, unencumbered closer. He had 38 saves in 2018 and then 16 in 2019. He had one in 2020 and then seven last year. So uh, I like Blake Trinan a good bit. And those of you that drafted him at the discount while we kind of held our breath on Kenley Jansen, you benefited. So so good on you there because I do think he'll be, you know, the main guy, if not uh, a top tier guy. Giovanni Gallegos, if you've been following me at all this year in the offseason, you know how much I love him and you know how much I just wish they would give him the job. But again, to repeat it, they're not because they're going to use him in a fireman's role, and I get it. It makes sense. That said, I keep looking at the seasons from last year of Emmanuel Classe and a Jordan Romano, and I'm like, that can be my boy Gallegos. Now, they finished 5-7 and seven respectively, and I want to be clear. I'm not projecting Gallegos to have ratios quite that sharp. Um, Classe had a 129 ERA. That's insane, and a .96 whip. The .96 whip is very good, but not off the charts insane. It's the 129 ERA. Um, and Romano's are more attainable, I think, at 214 and 105. But they had 23 saves for Romano, 24 for Classe. I think Gallegos gets a low 20s saves count, uh, strikes out a ton of guys at like a 30, 30 something percent clip, and has good ratios, which means he shouldn't have much trouble finishing as a top 10 closer. And it could be as high as five or six, which Kase was fifth on the auction calculator last year. That's with the 129. But Romano was seventh with the 214. So even if, let's say Gallegos has more of a 290 ERA, but a 30% strikeout rate, which is uh, higher than Kase had, but lower than than uh, Romano, but then he gets you know 24 saves, that's enough. That is enough for me to want to take Gallegos as the sixth or seventh closer off the board. I think I think I have him rated, yeah, sixth. I have him ahead of Romano um, and Jansen. That's a little group right there, though, that it kind of depends where I'm at. I, I don't necessarily just draft them in order. Um, you know, did I get one of the big dogs? Because I'm, I'm not above doubling up, y'all. I'm not above getting two of my top 10. I'm really not. Uh, not just in draft and, draft and hold either, even in standard leagues. I don't want to fight for saves during the season. That, that's a pain in the ass. I hate doing that. So if I get Class A, I'd probably go for Jansen with him. But if I get Hayter or Hendricks, I'd probably go to my boy Giovanni at that point. But there are a lot of times where my first closer is coming after the, my top five, which is Hayter, Hendricks, Class A, Iglesias, Presley, in which case it's Gallegos, Romano, or Jansen. And then I have to make a choice. Do I want to get Jansen, who I think is kind of um, you know, the top guy who can get 30 plus with a, a quality Atlanta team, or do I want to take one of my, you know, flashier guys in Gallegos or Romano, but they haven't hit that 30 yet. 
I don't know. But Gallegos is going to be a beast. I think Romano's going to be a beast again. Now, Romano has a great chance to jump into that uh, 30-plus level, but I, I haven't seen a commitment yet. And maybe I've missed it. And if I have, definitely hit me with a link or something. Maybe I'll, let me do a news check right now while we're, while we're talking. Because if they give, if they say he's our guy, he's a button push guy, meaning ninth inning, three runs or fewer lead, you're, you're hitting that bat signal for Jordan Romano every damn time out outside of the times when he needs a little rest or whatever. And you're not going to Julian Merriweather or somebody else. He can jump up there. So that's why I really like him. I think he might be ready to do that. He also needs to stay healthy, though. Injuries have been a little bit of an issue with Romano. Can he stay healthy enough to get that sort of trust? He also threw in seven wins last year, I should point out. That's another thing with these firemen, though, and something that um, Kwasi had four. Let me see how many Gallegos had. Because Gallegos can steal you a few a few wins there, too. And I know you're drafting a closer for saves, but you just want the value, right? Like, value is, is what you're going for. He had 14 saves, but six wins as well. So don't sleep on my boy Gallegos. I know I know Justin's always trying to downplay him, and that's why I kicked him off this episode. I said, you can't be here. Actually, no, he's he's going to Vegas. That's why he couldn't be here. Uh, but yeah, so there's my fireman guys. Jordan Romano, Giovanni Gallegos, Blake Trinan, Taylor Rogers. Happy to get any of them. I need... I need one of these top 12. Like, I, I I, just, I have to. And that's just where I'm at with the Kozer pool and my confidence with them. It's got to be one of these 12 for me to start my, my, uh, my bullpen. All right, so when I first made this rundown, it was about a week ago, I think. And so we were still in the midst of all the flurry of moves and all that. And so I put... You know, I just did my little subcategory of like the stud if traded, which is Craig Kimbrell. Y'all, <laughs> I think we're running out of time here. Is he going to get traded? And I only bring bring up the uh, the week ago thing because I think if I was redoing the rundown today from scratch, I might have him much lower in the in the in the sheet for a talking point because I I don't think he's going to be traded in time. I think they're just going to be comfortable with him and. Here's the thing. I was having a little bit of a discussion about this in my Twitch chat with some folks, and there was a dissenting opinion that said, you know, he, he thought it was a little premature for everyone to just assume he was going to be traded. And I said, you know, I, I'm, I'll listen to the counterpoint, but for me, uh, the reason I don't agree and the, what really set me on the Kimbrel will be traded situation was when they signed Kendall Graveman. At that point, I was like, oh, there's no shot. That they're, that they're just going to pay Kimbrell 16 milli to be a setup man because they've got Hendricks, Bummer, Crochet, Raylo, Reynaldo Lopez already in tow, and they added Graveman. Graveman replaces Kimbrell. You trade Kimbrell for another asset, bing, bang, bong. Like, and they also brought in uh, Vince Velasquez, who don't, don't even be surprised if Ethan Katz figures something out with Vince Velasquez and turns him into uh, a, a beast reliever. Matt Foster was really good in 20. Um, he didn't. He did not hold that magic last year, but it was a big home run issue that maybe he could fix. But he's like the sixth, seventh dude. That's what I'm saying. They have so much depth that I didn't think that they would, you know, want necessarily a luxury like Kimbrel, knowing that they have some holes. If I thought their offense was like untouched one to nine sure i could also that'd be another way that i could see kimbrell uh sticking around but y'all they've got josh harrison penciled in at second and Leary garcia penciled in at right at, at at present moment and 
you know, those aren't bad ball players. They're solid guys. But for a team that fancies itself a championship contender, if they could trade Kimbrell to fill one of those holes, which I'm fairly certain they could, I think they can get a corner outfielder or a second baseman for Kimbrell in a, like a straight up deal. I'm surprised that they haven't done it. But the latest report, White Sox manager Tony La Russa said Saturday, Saturday the, uh, the 12th, that he expects Craig Kimbrell to be on the team's opening day roster. So I'm sorry if you drafted him. I was definitely on that train to do that. I don't actually have him, but I... It, it's, it was a simple fact of like it didn't work out to where I needed him or anything like that when he, when he was going. But I was certainly open to drafting him under the idea. I'm like, oh, he's going to get traded. I was banging that drum too. I felt very confident in that. And right now, we're wrong. And I, I don't know that we're going to be proven right in time for the season to start. I think they're going to wait for a desperate situation to open up and maybe hope that they can get more than whatever maybe the offers are right now. I don't know if it's a situation like that or if they just never really entertained it and we kind of projected that onto them and they were always just going to be comfortable having a deep mega pen and maybe they've already talked to Hendricks and Kimbrell together and said, hey, you know, it's going to be Hendricks's job, Kimbrell, but if you're cool to stay and, and you know, not cause a fuss, we'll keep you on. We got a great team if, you, if you're cool with winning and being a big part of it. Because like, yeah, saves matter and everything. And I know that he has a legacy of being an elite closer and he wants to add to his saves total. So I would even understand if he's, if you know, I wouldn't back him if he was like a prima donna about it and just go around bitching and being a dick. But I can understand if he's like, nah, I'd, I'd really rather get a trade. And I, I, I'm thinking big picture here. I want to be on a good team, but I also want to keep adding to my saves count uh, because you know stats stats matter to a level too you want to win you absolutely want to win and I, I respect guys that, that prioritize winning above anything uh, including their stats but a 34 year old closer who has 372 saves probably wants to get to 400 and I'm okay with that too so I would have thought that maybe he's like yeah I'm fine to be traded type of deal we don't know what's happened behind closed doors there and where it's at but what we do know right now is that he's still a white sock and it's looking like he's going to be a White Sox on opening day. So I don't have the best guidance on to whether or not you should hold Kimbrell or not. I think it is very league dependent. I'm NFBC focused right now. So if I'm, I'm going to use that as my, as my prism here, seven, uh, seven reserve spots are all you get. No ILs, no nothing like that. Just seven straight up reserve spots. I would not hold Kimbrell in 12 teamers. In 15 teamers, I would maybe hold uh, pretty much as long as I could, I guess. Like the second that I have like two injured guys, let's say. So then I would have two injured guys in Kimbrel, and that'd be three of my seven would be dead spots. I would be cutting him at that point. I think that would be my threshold is two injured guys that are out for, you know, an extended period of time. They're on the IL type of deal. That would be my cutoff to get rid of Kimbrel in a 15-teamer. In a 12, I think I'm just straight up cutting him. It's stick and move, baby. You can't you can't be holding uh, closer stashes like that when it requires a move to get Kimbrel into a, a, a role. Anyway, I just spent like 30 minutes on Kimbrel. Sorry about that. <laughs> Let's go on to the old reliable. Now, if you listened to the SP episode already, you know I put... Uh, I, I had an old reliable tag for a group of guys and I put old reliable question mark. Uh, not so much here. This is more old reliable exclamation point because I do think that Mark Melanson is the unquestioned guy in Arizona. I know they brought in Ian Kennedy, y'all. 
And they obviously have good experience with Ian Kennedy. He was a really strong starter there. I think he eventually, did he start his relief work there? Oh, no, 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 no. He was gone and still starting for several years after that. Pardon me. He didn't start relieving. Wow, he's had a very long career. I, I just squinched his timeline to like five years. <laughs> he, he's, he's going on like a 15-year career. I'm an idiot. Uh, but yeah, he was a really good starter with them many moons ago. Uh, he's been, you know, to San Diego, Kansas City, and Texas and Philadelphia since, but he's emerged into a pretty solid closer, uh, Ian Kennedy has. In fact, somewhat uh, Melanson-y in that he's like a stable veteran. He does it a little bit differently. He actually has a little bit more swing and miss than Melanson, but he saved 30 in 2019 and 26 last year. I do think he is just back up for Melanson though. That's two 37-year-olds uh, who can close. They know that they can probably flip both of those guys for something down the line if they want to, even if they're just like C or B minus level prospects, you never know, right? Like you don't usually, like teams are a little bit more, um, what, what, what's the phrase? They, 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 they prospect hug, they hug their prospects a little bit more, uh, perhaps a little bit too tightly at times with trades where it used to be a little bit too free where they'd give up, you know, a a top 20 prospect to get a closer for two months it's like whoa maybe that's too much but now it's almost the other way where it's like they won't even give their you know 24th rated prospect for two months of a closer it's like well maybe you should do that but i think with the extra playoff spots too you might see teams be willing to say hey let's we got to get this piece because we could actually make this and then melanson and kennedy can be dealt so i think you're getting treat melanson the way I, we were treating Richard Rodriguez last year, which was he's the guy in his spot, which was Pittsburgh for Richard Rodriguez, but he'll probably get traded out of closing at some point. Just just plan for it that way. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he gets traded to be a closer on a contending team. That's great. But plan for him as more of a half closer, but to be the man during that half. All right, now we have two guys here that I called, hang on a second. The good, but not locked. These two guys are very good, but I don't know that they are, uh, you know, trusted capital C closers on their given team based on a couple different things. And when, this, when I say the names, you'll start to fill in the pieces of what I mean. Corey Kniebel in Philadelphia is the team's closer as of now. That, that is that is what it stands. In fact, that as of now quote, uh, or that as of now phrase is in quotes, which uh, was a quote from Joe Girardi. So they're leaving it open that like things could change. Now, this is actually a little bit of an older quote even. It's, it's from 10 days ago. I guess it was uh, implying that, hey, guys could come in uh, via free agency and they have done that. Hey, Juris Familia, Brad Hand have come in. Jose Alvarado's still on the team. Uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez is working his way back in, uh, in spring training, doing his thing right now. He could be ready to, you know, threaten if Kniebel was not good enough. I think Kniebel will get some time. I don't think he'll be pushed out for anybody uh, without him failing. I think he'll get an opportunity to be the dude. Um, Kniebel has really just been a, a strikeout stud now for a while. He's, his strikeout rates have actually come down a little bit. Um, he got hurt in and missed all 19, I think, with TJ. And since coming back, he hasn't quite gotten his strikeout rate amped all the way back up to the 40% that it was in 2017, 2018. Uh, it was 24% 
in 2020 and then 30% last year. So it's, it's working its way back up. Um, even if it's just 30, it doesn't need to get back to 40 for Corey Knievel to be somebody that you're interested in. He was working his velo back up. He was really finding his footing. He only has 39 innings since returning from TJ in 2019. So let's give him a little bit of a break uh, as far as Corey Knievel goes and say, hey, those are kind of ramp up years and he could be a beast this year. He could run and run away and hide. I would say this though, if you make him your closer one, you better get your next one very shortly after, right? Like get another guy in that tier there because sure, he could end up being a 30 save guy by the end of the year, but there is enough threatening him that that you would want to be careful. In fact, for me, I would absolutely need to have, well, I've already told you, I got to have one of my top 12 and then I will gladly put Knievel on as my second guy, but I don't really want him to be um, to be my number one guy. I'm actually trying to look up real quick on the fly. You might hear some pages flipping. I'm flipping through the back end of my forecaster here, Baseball HQ forecaster, uh, to see what... I, I'm, I'm actually questioning myself if it was TJ or not. Okay, it was. I was just making sure. I was just making sure that it was indeed TJ surgery for Corey Kniebel there, that that's why he missed 19. I, I knew it was a big injury. I figured it was TJ, and it was. The other guy that is good but not locked is Camilo Duvall out in San Francisco. Now, this flashy rookie had an amazing little sample to kind of announce himself at the end of the year and into the playoffs, but we don't know exactly what the situation is in San Francisco. Actually, scratch that. We do know. We know that they're not going to commit. Gabe Kapler's going to play, uh, you know, the, the hot hand, the, the guy he needs uh, at, at the right time. You know, Jake McGee is a lefty who has a lot of closing experience. Just last year, he got uh, 31 saves. He was the dude until he wasn't. Then they started mixing and matching, and Tyler Rogers got a handful, I believe, and then Doval himself. I'm actually pulling up their numbers real quick here. One second. So looking at all their closing numbers last year, yeah, Rogers got 13, and then Duvall got three late, and then a handful of guys got two, and Harlan Garcia got one. So Duvall came in very late uh, in terms of emerging. He pitched early in the year, a little bit in April, a little bit in May, then did not return until August, was there for two innings, then went back down, then was up for good in September and into the playoffs. In September, he had a, a zero ERA in 14 in the third innings with seven hits allowed, three walks, 20 strikeouts in 14 in the third innings. It was 20 strikeouts out of 52 batters as well. So that's 39% with three saves. And those were three of the last, uh, let's see, five games of the year. So at the very end there, Duvall was kind of, was the guy. Uh, but again, be careful because it's. It, I understand wanting to be super hyped on him. And I think I even made a tweet. Uh, I think I, I've kind of done this once a year with a guy that uh, that's popping off late. I, I can't wait to overdraft so-and-so. A few years ago, it was Sixto Sanchez. Uh, last year, it was Camilo Duvall. And, uh, or last, you know, in the fall, it was Camilo Duvall. I actually have not been overdrafting him. And I think his price is actually pretty fair. But there is upside here. There is upside to be really special if they kind of give him a real shot at, at, at being the guy. He is going at pitcher 150, but it's right behind my boy Rogers, And I'm just going to take Taylor Rogers at that point, even though I, I acknowledge that he himself is not unencumbered, completely you know, free and clear as the guy. But I don't think he has anybody as good as, as Jake McGee behind him 
uh, Taylor Rogers doesn't, the, the way Duvall does. And so that's kind of the nerve-wracking thing there about trusting Duvall is having McGee there and even Rogers, Tyler Rogers, Taylor's brother, the ground ball god. So just be careful. Don't overinvest in Duvall. If he is your guy, you know, don't pencil in 30 saves. Pencil in 18 and then realize you got to go get some more elsewhere. All right. Now, this one, this group is called the more stable than we think. Uh, and that is posed as a question because I don't know that these six have necessarily been treated as, you know, firm closers. And I understand why. Like, I, they, they all have a little bit of shakiness to them depending on different things. And we're going to get into all of it. But I wonder if now that we are, what, uh, two weeks out from the start of the season, if these guys are going to start to be treated more as like, hey, they're, uh, let me see. Most of them are on bad teams, and that's a big part of it too. But are they the guy? Let's start in Kansas City with Scott Barlow. And by the way, they won't necessarily be a bad team. In fact, I'll, I'll just kind of loop uh, their their division mates, the Detroit Tigers, in here as well with Gregory Soto, because both of those teams, uh, you know, have a green arrow up next to their next to their team, you know, for their outlook because they're adding young players, they're developing, they're really starting to show like, hey. They're ready to take a step forward. The Tigers were really good from May 1st on. Um, Casey really wasn't. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I think they had a pretty decent April, and then they were garbage from May 1st on. But they do have a lot of interesting young talent. They're starting to put some things together. They got Bobby Witt on the come up. They got really interesting young starting pitching. And Scott Barlow could be the dude. He's 29 years old, and he ended up last year with, I think, 14 saves? 16 saves and five wins with a 30% strikeout rate in 74 innings, 242 ERA, 120 whip. Whip was a little high because of walks and a little bit uh, on the hits, you know, at 7.4, but that was actually his career best. So he stifled hits for the, the, the best of his career. And I understand the Barlow truthers. There's a group out there that really love him and I get it. But I kind of put him like he's not that far from the Duvall camp. In fact, I probably could have put Duvall and Knievel in here, but again, I also thought that like they're not necessarily uh, more stable than we think. I think they're good, but not locked. So that's why I, that's why I did the separation. But uh, I think Barlow is the guy over Stomont right now. Stomont's walk rates are just too high. He's got nasty stuff. He's got really strong uh, strikeout rates, 33% in 2020, uh, 27% last year with good swing strike rates to back it up. But he's a career 11% walk guy. And that's just too many. So that that can be a little bit nerve-wracking. Now, last year, he only gave up 5.9 hits. This is Stomont I'm talking about. So he had a 107 whip. He was able to kind of uh, counterbalance the walks by not giving up any hits. And that's what we see a lot with guys, these nasty relievers. When they have high walk rates, a lot of times it's because they're so nasty. Uh, guys can't hit them either, though. So, yeah, I give up a few walks, but nobody can hit anything, so I don't give up any damage off of it. Stomont is a legitimate threat, but I do think Barlow has the job at the outset. And, you know, at the draft table, we're looking for the guy that has the job at the outset. And I mentioned Detroit with Gregory Soto. Now, he has been named, and he was named actually, I think, either right as the season ended or even before the season ended. So I wonder if he should be being treated a little bit better than he is <clears throat> as a closer. But the counter to that, which I totally understand, I'm a Tigers fan, I've watched Gregory Soto, is that, like, he's he's insanely wild. He... <laughs> 
He is terrifying to watch. I talked about how Josh Stelmont was able to outrun his walk rate by just not allowing too many hits. Well, when you allow a 15% walk rate, even if you only allow 6.5 hits, you're still going to have a 135 whip. And that's exactly what Gregory Soto had last year with 18 saves, 28% strikeout rate. <clears throat> I think to hold the job all year and actually push for 30-plus saves, something has to give. He either has to be more difficult to hit or the walk rate has to get down closer to like 10%. I think 15 is just a little too high to fully survive without some trouble. Now, they do have some reinforcements. They have Michael Fulmer. And I wonder if maybe this is another one of those situations where they're freely, you know, if you got him off the record or truth serum or whatever you want to say, and you said, AJ, who's your best reliever? I don't think he would answer Gregory Soto. I think he would say it's Michael Fulmer, and that's why we're going to have him in the fireman role, and we're going to have Soto in the ninth where we can give him better setups um, to with the three-run lead in the ninth inning. Because you look at Fulmer last year, 70 innings with a 25% strikeout rate, 7% walk. The hits were up a little bit at 8.9, but he still had a 128 whip, 297 ERA. Whip, whip ran a little high because of the hits. I will freely grant that. But 13% swinging strike rate says there might even be more strikeouts there. He is still kind of learning uh, how to relieve. So I think that's part of it too with Fulmer. Don't be surprised if he takes over this job at some point. If you're in a deeper draft where you where you like to get handcuffs, um, go for Fulmer. Even if you don't have Soto, he could be the guy. He's the better pitcher. That's not always the best path for saves these days, though. It used to be draft skills, not roles, and the best guy will find his way into the ninth. Well, teams learn that you don't need to put your best guy in the ninth anymore, as I've discussed throughout this entire episode, and so and as such. You might see a situation where Soto keeps that job for the bulk of the year and somebody like Fulmer ends up being a badass fireman but never really gets a ton of saves. Now, he did get 14 last year. He was the closer uh, for periods of time, but I'm just wondering if they're seeing him as their their go-to reliever who comes out in the 6th, 7th, 8th, and occasionally the ninth. whereas Soto hand over three-run lead to him and just let him you know walk two guys and then get out of it in a scary save. He'll, he'll, he'll give us a dirty Fuentes for my uh, 06010 old school listeners. Uh, Texas, they have the other Barlow brother. They're not actually brothers, but uh, it's fun. It's fun to imply that because it's it's two two guys named Barlow that are both closing. So, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of teams out there that have, have the Barlow brothers. Again, not actually brothers, but I'm going to keep calling them that. But Joe Barlow out in Texas did pretty well. 155 ERA, 0.83 whip. Now, obviously, a 155 ERA is more than just pretty well, but I'm not giving him full credit for that because a 143 BABIP is not going to last, and he had a 418 Sierra and a 345 FIP. So where where he did do pretty well, though, was 24% strikeout, 11% walk. Again, 10-11 I can live with, especially if you're very difficult to hit, and he was damn near impossible with that tiny BABIP and 3.7 hits per nine. He got 11 saves. Um, he's got some good swing and miss in the minors. He had really, really good swing and miss. He was very nasty, but he had the same walk issues. So that's nothing new. I will say this tiny Babbitt, this is not new for him. You know what? Wow. I actually did not realize this. I'm learning this as I'm looking here because I had not really done a full investigation of Joe Barlow's minor league work, but he's always been this nasty, um, outside of one stop. It was in AAA in 2019, 17 innings where he allowed 11.9 hits due to a 440 Babbitt. But he's had 
disgustingly low averages against and hit nine ratings for quite a while. In fact, from 2018 on, he's been under four hits per nine at every one of his six stops, except for that one I mentioned. So five of the six, that's crazy. So maybe, I mean, a 143 BABIP is still insane. And I, I'm not, I'm not going to project that or anything like that, but I am going to be looking to maybe give him more credit for the hits per nine and say that maybe he can be somebody who lives in the five or better range because it seems Joe Barlow is just really, really difficult to square up. I'm pretty intrigued by him now that I'm, I'm kind of deep diving here a little bit more. I, I, I'd only given a cursory look and now I'm like, okay, dang, is this a little bit more stable than we think? Get it? Because that's the title of the of the grouping we're in here. Uh, but yeah, he's got the one thing though, they did get Greg Holland who, you know, he is a capital C closer and we can scoff and roll our eyes at that because it is a little trite at times. But when a guy's done it historically and they have 220 saves under their belt, even a 36 year old like Greg Holland who showed last year that maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the gas has run out, you know, he rebounded in 20. Uh, he was rough in 18, 19 rebounds in 20, but it was for 28 innings. And then he goes right back to, to being kind of crummy last year. I, I think Holland is probably toast, but I can't fully write him off until he's not pitching anymore because the, we've seen it before with these closers that are like Mike Myers from Halloween. They just keep coming back and they just keep popping up when you least expect it. So um, Greg Holland is there. So is Spencer Patton, but I like Joe Barlow. Now, when Kenley Jansen, Jansen went to Atlanta, that created a little bit more stabilization for a guy that I've been kind of keeping an eye on, and that's Dylan Floro. I thought maybe Miami would be interested. Now, I thought this during the lockout, and then we kind of learned uh, ahead of the lockout being fully resolved and then immediately after that apparently Miami was not going to be spending anymore. Apparently they were like, okay, we're, we're not going to be going out and making a ton of moves. Although, interestingly, they then did make some moves. Like they went and got... Um, Avisal Garcia and Jorge Soler. Or no, Avi was in December before the lockout, excuse me. Only Jorge Soler was after. But that, I mean, that is, that was spending some money. So I don't know. But we were led to believe that Jansen maybe wasn't in the cards because they didn't want to spend any more money. And maybe it's just because they realized we got some guys uh, in the form of Dylan Floro and then Anthony Bender behind him. Now, if you listen to this pod last year, you know I was very much in the Bender camp. And I was beating that drum for him to get the job. It got the Craig Mish co-sign. There are a few guys more dialed in on what's going on with the uh, Marlins than Craig Mish. That's C-R-A-I-G-M-I-S-H. Follow him on Twitter. Good guy as well. But uh, he's super dialed in. And he he was thinking that it was going to be Bender as well. And he was you know, reading the tea leaves on uh, what Mattingly normally does. And we got it wrong. Plain and simple, we got it wrong. Floro ended up being the guy. He closed out really strong. And then I got Dylan Floro's cap for the Baseball HQ Forecaster. I get to write a few pages for that each year. And I got his and I was like, okay, I know how I'm going to approach this. I'm going to shit all over. <laughs> like I, I was set up to be like, yeah, this, is, this isn't that good. Anthony Bender's the dude. I don't buy this type of deal. That, that was kind of the, the the framework that I had laid. I have an amazing editor there. Brent Brent Hershey edits my my caps and I love the process with him. He challenges me, you know, to, to really think through everything, turn over every rock to make sure that I'm not missing stuff. 
And plain and simple, he didn't quite dig the, the floral outlook. He's like, I don't know, man. I think you need to look a little bit deeper here and make sure that that you're comfortable with saying, you know, basically that that this guy was, was a fraud. So went back, opened up all my tabs again, and really realized that in that second half, when he was when he was closing, he really took a jump. And there was a legitimate change in floral, even at age 30, you know, kind of out of nowhere. Um that he had done something, he had done something legit. And what we really saw there was a 240 ERA and a 1.0 whip uh, on the button, four wins, 13 saves, 34 strikeouts in 30 innings. The strikeout boost was great. Uh, the walk rate had dipped from an early, early, early struggle in the first half. But the real issue in the first half was that his strikeout rate was just 18% with the 10% walk rate. Then he gets it down to, to 8% walk rate, 29% strikeout rate with a swinging strike rate boost to match. So it was completely backed up when that went from 9 to 13%, his swinging strike rate. This is Dylan Floro I'm talking about. And he's always been a good ground ball guy. And simply put, uh, he's also been an amazing home run suppressor, which is something I really like out of somebody closing. In fact, that's why I really don't like somebody in San Diego I'm going to talk about, no matter how good everyone all the rest of his metrics are, he just doesn't allow, he just allows way too many homers. Dylan Floro does not do that. I think Dylan Floro has a chance to keep this job unencumbered. Another reason, it's one I keep repeating, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say it for Bender. He might be their very best reliever, and they might just be fine having him as the fireman. This fireman role is really being propped up again as a significant go-to role. It's not just like a setup reliever. It's getting a little bit more cachet and guys, I'm probably feeling more comfortable about being in it because they can get paid off of it. Now, what we really need to have happen is arbitration to change a little bit to where guys aren't just paid off of saves. They can get paid off of like win probability added and things like that because then I think the the, uh, setup roles would have even more cachet and guys would have no problem if they don't get the ninth inning. So, I'm in on Floro, guys. I really think there's a lot to like here. I think he's going to get the job at the outset. Bender's still somebody who's interesting. He's somebody I would speculate with if I was um, in a draft and hold still in in those 50 rounds trying to find some cheaper saves. I've gotten Bender in just one of my leagues, but I I threw that that line out there just in case. Um, He's got nasty stuff. He's only 27 years old to Floro's 31, but I do think it's Floro's job right now, and I think he is more stable than we think. David Bednar in Pittsburgh. This was a guy I really liked coming off of, I, I talked about how much I was in on Rich Rod last year. And right around the deadline, I started going out and picking up David Bednar shares, thinking that he would be the obvious guy to get the job. Well, that was another Anthony Bender-esque swing and a miss for your boy, because he only ended up with three saves. It ended up being Chris Stratton that 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 really started to get the saves. I think he ended, how many did he have? Eight? Yeah, nailed it. He had eight. So Stratton ended up being the being the guy, and I'm sorry to just keep repeating the same thing, but I think this is another case where they let the best reliever be the fireman, and they let the second best at that point be the closer, and that's that's the way it's set up with Stratton. I think they change it this year, though. I do think Bedner at 27 does assume the closer's role this time around. Um, Stratton is still there breathing down his neck. But I do think that there's a good shot for Bedner to get a lot more saves this year and and be the guy from day one. I think they're ready to kind of hand him that role. He can kind of be their next their next like really strong closer. He's got a lot of talent, so I think David Bedner can be an absolute G as a closer. So I'm eager to see 
if they trust him this year, I'm treating him as being trusted and I've got him in the more stable than we think. And then the last one, I guess this is only until he gets traded because he could be traded at any point before opening day. Even though he's not being rumored as a big trade candidate, everyone in Oakland is, is a trade candidate. So I think Lou Trevino might have a better hold on that job than we think. He had 22 saves last year. And, you know, they're tearing down. So I don't think that they're going to be as concerned about, uh, you know, mixing and matching to to maximize wins. They're already tanking, right? They're, they're going in a down cycle. And their down cycles don't even full tank. You, you've heard me talk about this recently with Justin. He thinks they're going to be dreadful, you know, 8 billion losses. The thing of it is, is when they trade off all these pieces like this, they play all the minor leaguers that they got. Like they usually get a bunch of good prospects and then they just play those guys and let them learn on the job. So yeah, they do bottom out and they will probably finish fifth this year in the division, but it'll be with like low nineties losses as opposed to a hundred something. And that's just kind of the way they are. And they'll probably have a few down years with like 92, 94 losses. Then they'll have 87 losses. And then the next year they're going to be like, you know, uh, 96 and, and 66 or something like that. Like this is a normal cycle for them. I think it will include Lou Trevino being the closer primarily. Now, if he falters, which is a possibility, he's probably, he's the least, uh, my least favorite talent wise of this group of, of the two Barlows, Soto, Floro and Bednar with Trevino. So that's the way that he could go out is if he just isn't missing enough bats and giving up too much contact. I mean, he had a 436 Sierra, so even his his 3.18 ERA was a little bit, a little bit sketchy according to the to the metrics, and so uh, at 1.25 WHIP as well. So keep an eye on guys like Domingo Acevedo, who uh, you know only had a 21% strikeout rate in his 11 innings with the A's, but had a 14% swinging strike rate. And he was at 42% in 33 innings at AAA. So Domingo Acevedo, former Yankee, is pretty interesting as a as a, a potential chaser behind Lou Trevino. And I still can't give up on AJ Puck's talent. Um, now, just because he looks like Josh Hader doesn't mean he'll he will become Josh Hader. I mean, I'm talking like the long hair, even the face kind of looks similar. Uh, you know, flamethrower from the left side. He's not Josh Hader, but. He does bring 96 from the left side. He's got swing and miss. Injuries have really, really plagued him, but I wouldn't be surprised if he emerged and all of a sudden got the job. So Trevino is more stable than we think, at least at the outset. He needs to hold it, whereas these other guys, I think, all have the, the talent to hold it and could then run away with it to that end. Um, and that's why these are ranked in order. Barlow, Soto, Barlow, so that's Scott, then Joe, Floro, Bednar, Trevino. Actually, no, I moved Soto up to talk about him because uh, we were talking uh, AL Central, guys. I actually have Soto. It's Barlow, Barlow, Floro, Soto, Bednar, Trevino. Uh, this one is a one-guy one, one tier. It's called the Desperation Move, Alex Colomay. Do not put yourself in a situation where you need Alex Colomay's saves because he's in Colorado. And he's a little bit shaky himself, right? Like Alex Colomay in the best of situations has you a little bit nervous uh, based on the fact that he's had home run issues at different times. He had a 9.4 hit nine last year. Now, that was with a six-year high 305 Babbitt. So maybe there was a little bit of, of bad luck there. But he's 33. He's never been like a, a eye-popping strikeout guy. Well, actually... 
I shouldn't say never. 31% in 2016 is, is quite good. But that was the really one time that he was like, whoa, this is an amazing strikeout, right? Even though he has great swinging, swinging strike rates, Alex Colome, for some reason, has never pushed his strikeout rate consistently into that 25% range or higher. Um, so yeah, in Colorado, I doubt he's likely to pop off all of a sudden. And I just, I don't want to be in a situation where I need his saves. Now we're going to finish with the open situations. There's seven teams here that it's open. It's either already a guaranteed committee or we just don't know exactly who's going to get the job or the, the guy who has the job kind of just isn't that good. You'll get it. But let's start with the best team of this group. We're going to kind of go in team quality order here. And we're going to start with San Diego. Now, I mentioned earlier about Emilio Pagan. I'm going to eliminate him first. I'm sorry, y'all. I just don't see it. I think we try to put, every time he's on a team that has an open closer situation, we try to put Emilio Pagan in there. He's a home run machine, folks. It just doesn't work. 1.8 homer nine over his career is why he has a 373 ERA and a 103 whip. Those are incongruous normally. And normally you'd say, well, if he has that, that good of a whip, the ERA will come down. Not when you allow that many homers. So until he fixes that problem, and he's shown no capability of doing that in his five years, his best season for Pagan is a 1-3 homer nine, which is still too many as a closer. He did get 20 saves for Tampa Bay in 2019. I grant that. Um, he needed a 36% strikeout rate and a 5% walk rate and 5.8 hits per nine, which tied for a career best to do that because he still gave up 1.5 homers per nine. So I don't, I don't believe that he's going to be the guy in San Diego. So I'm going to discard him first. The one thing I will say, though, Bob Melvin did have him in Oakland. So he does have some familiarity with him, and that could earn him a chance. I just think that the home runs are too scary to trust Pagan as a closer. Pierce Johnson, I think he walks too many guys. Uh, Luis Garcia is a 35-year-old who had a career-best 6% uh, walk rate last year, 15% swing strike rate. I don't know that a contending team turns turns it over to Luis Garcia, though. And then Austin Adams is nasty. In fact, he's so nasty that you should be scared shitless to face him in the box because uh, you have no idea where the ball is going to go. He hit 24 batters last year. That's crazy. Like, that is an inability to command or control the ball in any capacity that I think makes it a little bit difficult to put him in the closers role. Now, he doesn't allow homers. He had, you know, he allowed one homer last year, and he doesn't allow many hits, 4.8 hits per nine. But if you're walking or hitting, you know, uh, well, let me see. Let me add those walks real quick, or those hit-by-pitches to his walks against his batter's faced. That's a 24% walk-slash-hit-by-pitch rate. A quarter of your batters are getting on base via you, like your your own inability to command the ball. I just don't think a, co a contending team can trust Austin Adams, despite how nasty he is. If he can rein it in, he could be the guy. But I don't I don't really rank him very highly. Here's my two guys. One, and I I, I do have it on record here. And I I try not to fall too much into framing every conversation piece about something that. I made a call on, like, I don't like to start everything. I, I said this, I said this a long time ago. I said this a long time ago. The only reason I'm saying it on this one was because it was a long time ago. And it was on Denelson Lamette. I put him in my roster review for the Padres on November 9th. My hot take was that Denelson Lamette gets 25 saves. Um, and this was before the offseason where, you know, they could have gotten any number of guys. They haven't. 
I don't think they're going to unless maybe they trade for Kimbrell. And I still think Lamette should be the closer. I think he, he would really excel there. Um, he's a two-pitch guy. He's nasty as hell. I think he'd be a beast closer. But my pick is Robert Suarez. If you don't know who Robert Suarez is, I'm going I'm to teach you. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to let you know. Robert Suarez is coming over from overseas. He's coming in from Japan, uh, where he's been since 2016. He was in the Mexican League before that. He's not he's not pitched in the majors, uh, but he's been a a strong reliever uh, in in the Mexican League in 2015. He had 23 saves as a 24 year old way back when in 2015. Uh, but just as recently as 21 and 22, he had 42 and 25 saves respectively for the Hanshin Tigers. I think that's the Hanshin Tigers, right? I think they're the Tigers. Yes, uh, for the Hanshin Tigers. And excellent ratios to go with it. 116 ERA last year with a .77 whip. Um, only 58 strikeouts and 62 and a third. They're not as strikeout heavy uh, of a game over there in Japan. So I think that's probably still a pretty good rate. Uh, the bottom line is, though, he was dominant. And he showed he could do it, handle the ninth. I think it might earn him an opportunity in San Diego, which he could run with. He's got the skills to do it. He throws hard. He can reach triple digits. He's not some finesse guy. Robert Suarez is nasty, and I think he could be a sneak closer. So if you're looking for, you got two guys. You know, say you got, say you got Class A and and you know Corey Knebel, and you know you're looking maybe just to get one little piece of something, of another bullpen to try to finagle, go for Robert Suarez in San Diego, and he might end up being a true full-on closer. It's an open situation right now, but I love Robert Suarez, and I'm really uh, eager to see what happens there in San Diego. Of course, they can blow it all up and trade for Kimbrell while I'm doing this pod, and uh, we'll see how that goes. But if not, then I like Suarez and Denelson Lament the most. Seattle is a committed committee. Plain and simple. Uh, Drew Steckenrider, Paul Sewell, Diego Castillo, Ken Giles, and even Andres Munoz. Munoz and Giles returning from injury. Uh, the other guys part of part of the rotating the rotating door last year. Uh, and I think they're committed to that. That they're 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 fine going with that. So maybe you just pick your favorite and and hope that you can get double digit saves. But I don't think you can really count on much more than low double digits from any one of these guys. My bet, if I was going to put any any uh, stock in it, I don't think I've gotten any of these guys across any league yet. Let me let me check. I might have a Munoz share. I do have a couple Munoz shares in draft and hold because it's so cheap. But my guy that I think I would take in, say, for example, like my main event this weekend, if I were to go into Seattle's bullpen, I would take Drew Steckenrider. Um, I love what Paul Seawall did last year. He was really, really good, but it was kind of a pop-up season out of nowhere. And I'm a little bit nervous about it. He did have 10 wins and 11 saves. He was he was awesome. But where did that 16% swinging strike rate come from after never being higher than 12%? And that was all the way back in 2017. So I don't know. I I just he doesn't throw super hard. Uh, it's a little bit of it's a little bit of a mystery to me. I, I need to study Paul Seawall more. I'm gonna, I'm not even saying that he can't do it or that he's a fraud. I'm saying that my knowledge gap on Paul Seawall is something that I need to close if I'm going to feel more confident in him because right now I'm looking at Steck. I think Ken Giles is actually somebody who, when he ramps back up fully and say it's like May and he's and he's back to being Ken Giles, 
he might he might actually run and hide with that. They haven't committed to him yet because they don't know what they're going to get with him coming back from TJ, but I, I could see Ken Giles running with that job. Again, if I'm drafting this weekend, though, I'm going Drew Steckenrider. Tampa Bay, you know how they are, folks. They had, if you look at their pitchers, the number of pitchers getting at least one save, 14 last year, 12 in 2020, 11 in 2019. Those all led the league. 2018 was the last time they did not have the most guys getting at least one save. Andrew Kittredge, Pete Fairbanks, Matt Whistler, Brooks Raley. I don't know, man. I, I'd probably go Kittredge if I was going to draft, but I, I, I'm, I'm just not. I'm not messing with the Rays um, because I don't think they have. I, here's the thing. I think if Kevin Cash had somebody that he fully believed in, could just be the, the unquestioned guy and was a standout above the others, I think he'd be open to pushing that button, but nobody's really emerged as that. That's like that much better than everybody else. Kittredge was excellent last year. He made the damn all-star team, but I still think they like him as a fireman. So I think they want to bring him in. And he's another guy like Trinan, who's got that great ground ball rate that come a seventh inning that gets a little sticky, they might want to go to him for the ground ball. So that's why I can't even trust Kittredge as, as like the main guy to get 10 plus or whatever. So I just stay out of the Tampa situation. Washington, Kyle Finnegan closed it out last year. <sighs> yeah, and I think he's going to start with the job this year, but I don't know. I, I, I don't really get warm and fuzzies with anybody in Washington, so I'm just not really messing with that situation. I do think Finnegan's the guy to draft. Tanner Rainey, and then two guys who've closed years ago but are now 36 years old, Steve Ciszek and Sean Doolittle. I mean, they, they've shown they could do it, and closers, you know, like I said, they can they can pop back up out of nowhere and and reassume a, a previous form, but I just don't touch Washington at all. Cincinnati, I was ready to jump on this episode and really hype up Lucas Sims, but he's got elbow issues and he's not going to be ready for opening day. I will say, actually, um, Art Warren is somebody I really am intrigued by. Art Warren was really freaking good last year y'all if you're unfamiliar with what he did he had a 42 percent strikeout rate nine percent or excuse me 10 percent walk rate 4.7 hits per nine and just one homer allowed in 21 innings of work it's a small sample but it was a glorious sample with a 129 era and a 0.9 whip he also had uh 16 innings in triple a where he also struck out 42 percent so it was what what is that totaling then 37 innings of a 42 percent strikeout rate the first thing to stabilize as far as like sample size is strikeout rate so missing bats like that and having that sort of swing and miss there's some legitimacy to it. He's a heavy slider guy too. Art Warren throws his slider 60% of the time, fastball 40%. Keep a close eye on him. He's the one guy I would draft in that bullpen right now. Luis Sess is also somebody to at least consider, especially in Sims's absence. Um, I know we have Justin Wilson and Jeff Hoffman with the CL tag next to them on roster resource as well. I'm not really drafting either of them. Uh, the Cubs, Rowan Wick. He had five saves last year with a 29% strikeout rate. But they've added pieces that could definitely close ahead of him. Michael Givens, David Robertson, Chris Martin. I'm not touching the Cubs. I'm just not. So pick your favorite there. I Honestly, I should rank this other team higher, but I think they're going to be... I, I tried to rank them in terms of how good they're going to... Well, that's actually not true. Tampa Bay, I think, is going to be better than San Diego and Seattle. So they're not perfectly ranked top to bottom in terms of team quality. But I would take... 
Tyler Wells in Baltimore uh, before I would take any any Cub or any National. I might even take Cole Sulcer, the the kind of uh, other guy there in Baltimore, ahead of anybody on those uh, on those two teams as well. And Tampa Bay, throw Tampa Bay in there as well. I take Tyler Wells, Cole Sulcer over any Ray National or Cub. Now the Rays pitchers are good, unlike the the Nationals and and Cubs ones, but I just don't trust them for saves. Wells, Tyler Wells was awesome last year, but Cole Solcer was pretty damn good too. So I don't really, I don't have a perfect read there to be like, go get Tyler Wells and ignore Cole Solcer or vice versa. I can't say either of those. They're both looking pretty damn good. Cole Solcer had a 28% strikeout rate with a 14% swinging strike rate, 270 ERA, 112 whip, and eight saves, five wins. Tyler Wells only had four saves. He kind of got into the save game late, but 29% strikeout, 5% walk, 411 ERA, but 337 Sierra. The skills were saying, hey, he's better than this, but the homers were a little high. And if I'm going to be consistent, I have to point out that the home run issue does scare me. The reason that I don't tag Tyler Wells with the same sort of home run scare as Emilio Pagan is that it was a new thing. He never really gave up homers like this in the minors, and he made the jump from double A. Um, was he a Rule Five pickup? I'm wondering because he skipped uh, he skipped Triple A altogether. I'm going to look this up real quick. But yeah, so I don't think Tyler Wells necessarily has a full blown homer issue the way I do think uh, um, Emilio Pagan does. And he was a Rule Five guy, so he was learning on the fly. He gave up a few too many homers. He gave up nine, but for his minor league career, he never gave up more than 0.7 homers per nine. So I believe Tyler Wells or Cole Sulcer can hold the job if they anoint one of them then I, I probably would put them in that more stable than we think group ahead of Lou Trevino, to be honest. So keep an eye on the Baltimore situation. They're not going to win a ton of games, but the, the park is a little bit easier with the wall being moved out. And I think both these guys can get some good strikeouts. That's Cole Sulcer, Tyler Wells uh, in Baltimore. So there it is, all 30 teams. You got an idea of how I feel about where their saves are going to be. And hopefully this helps you uh, figure some things out, make some picks about who you want. And uh, good luck drafting. Don't be afraid to be aggressive with saves. I know some people are like, I'll never pay for this price. Like the market is what the market is, right? Just because we've never necessarily paid for saves this high before doesn't mean it's wrong to do so now. It's what the market merits if you want to get in on the saves game. And just don't forget that if you want to play the saves game in season, everybody else is going to as well. Even somebody that takes like hater class A, they're still gonna go in for your guy that gets that that is anointed the the closer on a Sunday evening when you go into that fab because everybody puts in something on the closers and that's why it's not as easy as just saying oh I'll get them in season because it'll just be me and a couple other teams competing for them nope more than more or less every team goes out for saves or or at the very least if it, even if it's not every team I will say this definitively every named closer in fab is expensive. If they are if they've said to be having the job and they already have 2 3 saves by the time fab comes up, they will be expensive. So you have to factor in that fab capital 
And you can say, oh, I don't want to use a fourth round pick on a closer. Okay, but do you want to use 600 of your $1,000? What about if you're in a $100 fab league and you don't have $0 bids? Um, do you want to use $60? Do you want to use $50 even on saves? Because you're going to have a lot of misses um, unless you get that first guy uh, and, he, and he becomes a dude. But, you know, ask people how that worked out with Julian Merriweather, who I didn't even mention, by the way, behind... Um, um, behind Jordan Romano. I love Romano. Merriweather is capable, but I, I don't think Romano's necessarily going to be threatened. I think the only thing that Romano has to worry about is his health. Anyway, don't mean to derail on that, but good luck drafting. I'll talk to y'all when we get back from uh, Las Vegas. We might have some little video takes and some little Twitter stuff out there with a lot of the people out there, uh, but no pod on Friday. Have a good one. Peace. <laughs>